Okay, let's open in prayer today. Father God, we thank you that we can come together as a family, Lord, and we can fellowship over your word, and we can explore it, Lord, and be filled with the excitement and joy that it provides. I thank you for this church family. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be leading us this day. Lord, I would especially lift up uh, your country, Israel, Lord, the apple of your eye, the one who you have uh, unfinished promises to deal with, Lord. I pray that this nation would do what it's right when it comes to the chosen people. And I lift them to you today, Lord, that you would protect them and keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. So you probably weren't expecting me today, but uh, Jim, Jeff, excuse me, needed to take, you're on my mind, Jim, I'm going to get you. Uh, Jeff needed uh, a week off uh, because of uh, the fact that he needed to be with his girls. They had a volleyball tournament yesterday, and he needed to be a dad, and so we're giving him the week off. Uh, so today you're stuck with me. Now, um, even though this was somewhat short notice, uh, I had already been thinking about some lessons or maybe a series of lessons on uh, what some students of the Bible refer to as the Shepherd Trilogy of Psalms. And these are Psalms uh, 22, 23, and 24. So what I'm going to do today is just uh, give what I would call the introduction to that series and uh, I don't know when I'll be doing the series, but we'll already have the introduction in place. So, Now, uh, and as you read these Psalms, 23, 24, excuse me, 22, 23, and 24, you're going to notice that there's somewhat of an uncanny connection between them in that they present or they give a picture of Christ in his multifaceted roles as our shepherd. And that would be the good shepherd, the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. Now, as always, you know, anytime you have a comment or a thought or a question, please feel free to interrupt me because we love to stop. Now, you may want to turn to that section of the Psalms just to kind of be looking at them. 22 and 23 may be somewhat familiar. 24 may be the least familiar. And I'm probably going to read that one when we get to it. So, but we'll come back to the Psalms uh, uh, in a moment. First, I want to consider some things that are pretty relevant uh, to this foundational introduction lesson. The first is that God is a God of prophecy. In fact, Revelation 19.10 tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is one reason why the Bible marks itself out and sets itself apart from any and all other writings and literature, all of which originate in the thoughts of men. Yet, the Bible boldly claims to be from God, even though he's chosen to use men as his agents in the recording and the preservation of his book. Now, we have 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 that boldly and unapologetically tell us that Scripture is from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Now, in addition, when someone asks a believer, how do we know that God exists? Or that Jesus was who he said he was, that is the Son of God, the Jewish Messiah, and the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. How do we respond? How do you respond? Any thoughts? Yes, Denise. Great. So Denise has lifted up one of the strongest evidences that there is, and that is fulfilled prophecy. God himself has given us at least one Bible passage of great importance in this area. God declares in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 23, how we can know that his words are true. Let's go there. Isaiah 41. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them, them here is referring to idolaters and their man-made idols that they worship as gods. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show us, look, number one, former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come, that is future things. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. I think he's added a bit of biting sarcasm at the end, but we should remember that in the days of Isaiah, everyone had a god, uh, meaning some idol which was man-made and that they worshiped as god. They would call their god, little god. All the nations surrounding Israel we're religious in that sense. But the important question is and was, who is right? Who is right? So in Isaiah, the God of the Bible, in his wisdom, issues this twofold challenge that we see here. First, God says, tell us, and I believe he's referring to the Godhead, tell us the former things. And he's referring, referring to things of the past, origins maybe, beginnings. And I would think of the cosmological and the biological in that process. And then, <clears throat> number two, in his wisdom, he adds, tell us the things still to come. And he's referring to future prophecies. So in other words, God is saying, if you think that you're worshiping the one true God, then have your idol tell us how this planet and life began. And tell us what is still to come. So in regard to origins and beginnings, I believe that whether we're speaking of idols or in this day and age of human opinions and theories, we would have to check the truthfulness of those. So we have the atheist and the evolutionist. They're more than ready to give us an explanation of the things that are, happened in the past. But usually when they lapse into moments of honesty, they admit that they really don't know. Although they can make something up, about the universe and man coming into being. But the truth is, none of us were there, were we? And so there's no way to verify it. 
even as Christians, we have an eyewitness firsthand account in Genesis 1 and 2. So, let's just break this down a second. Science. The secular science seems to have appropriated both the term science and the field of science in a way that they act as if they own it. But the truth about science is this. We have two major divisions in science. There is observational science or experimental science. This is when men apply God's universal laws to hypotheses and they know under certain conditions which are uh, going to be constant that this will happen. These are repeatable uh, evidences that are brought forth and these are produced. This evidence is produced. Historical science, on the other hand, looks at things from the past, discoveries basically, archaeological, geological, and that type of thing. And they don't really produce evidence, they arrange evidence. So that when it comes down to it, the data that is there for historical science is basically the same whether you believe in God or you reject God. What comes into play at this point is your worldview. That is, what, what glasses do you put on to look at the evidence? What are your presuppositions, your assumptions? And by that, you'll make an interpretation. Same data, but your interpretation is either, yes, God, or no, no God. And so you, it leads to a stalemate that we in this time can't really overcome. So the truthfulness or the lack thereof of these ambiguities between men's opinions and the word of God becomes abundantly clear when men try to declare what is to come. And this is why the second challenge of God in Isaiah 41 is so important. Predicting what is to come is not so easy. In fact, someone has said that man-made predictions of the future, well, these are about as accurate as the weatherman who says, I'm 90% accurate. 1% 1% of the time. <laughs> and so, <laughs> which is may even not, maybe that isn't even true. Yet, the Bible contains up to 30% prophecy. And so far as things have unfolded, it has been 100% accurate. And I mean in a literal sense. God knows the end from the beginning. And in particular, Psalm 22 is one such passage that proves it. We'll look at that in a minute. Now, before we do get into any uh, detail in this area, remember this is an introduction, an overview. Let me just point out a few things, a few ground rules. First, a diligent student of the Bible will soon discover that there are glimpses, we mean uh, types and pictures of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah, Jesus. And many of these do require excuse me, insight gained from the New Testament in order to be recognizable. However, secondly, it is also true that a reasonable amount of study will enable many students to give a persuasive presentation of of Israel's Messiah, that is Christ, using the Old Testament scriptures alone. Now think about the disciples when Jesus ascended back to heaven and they were to give out the gospel to all the world. The only scripture they had was the Old Testament. Paul was probably one of the best at doing this, and he could find Christ in the Old Testament and and bring this truth to the eyes of the unbeliever. Now, in our present day, this is pretty much the way Messianic believers are also able to convert their Jewish brothers and sisters. Yes, Porter. Porter. 
personal experience what? That they can relate, that they can relate to. Uh, I noticed, I know Karen was here today. Has this been your uh, experience as well, that uh, it's difficult to reason with Jewish unbelievers from the New Testament versus the Old Testament? In other words, when you're going to a, uh, a Jewish unbeliever, do you start in the New Testament to teach them about Jesus or the Old Testament? Okay, the Old Testament, right. I think uh, many Jews are just uh, pretty much taught uh, not to recognize the New Testament's authority of Scripture, right? Okay. Now, in using this pr- approach then, uh, that is finding Jesus in the Old Testament, one of the uh, most often used passages is Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 53. This is one of the four so-called servant songs of the Messiah. The other chapters are 42, 49, and 50. Uh, now, collectively, these passages in Isaiah are said to present as complete a picture of the Messiah as found anywhere in Scripture, and that cl- includes Old and New Testament. So the book of Isaiah is very powerful in that regard. Now, another book with many Messianic prophecies is the book of Psalms. Indeed, there's, there's a real blessing to be found in this group of Psalms that I'm talking about uh, that some scholars refer to as the Shepherd Psalm Trilogy. Now, we will come back to these, these Psalms in just a minute, but I'm still laying groundwork. So let me just ask a question. Has anyone in, in here ever heard of Dr. David Jeremiah? Okay. He's a pretty solid teacher. And I believe he's been teaching God's Word for 50 years at least. Uh, He's got a new book that just came out, and I got it uh, last week. And it's it's called The Great Disappearance, and it's written about the rapture of the church. In In that book, he devotes a whole chapter to what experts in communication call the rule of three, the rule of three. In general terms, the rule of three states that ideas or concepts are most understandable, relatable, and retainable, three, when they're expressed in groups of three. And he goes about, he gives general examples and biblical examples. So in his general examples, he uses uh, the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, we recognize that as inalienable rights that are outlined in the Declaration of Independence. Then he uses the phrase calm, cool, and collected. Now, in this class, we understand that that phrase refers to a debonair guy like Jim Powell. But are other cool guys, you know? And then the third one is, I came, I saw, I conquered. And that's from the Latin, Vini Vidi Vici, which is attributed to Julius Caesar. Now, he also gives some New Testament biblical examples which are groupings of three. The first is in Luke 10. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he talks about the priest, the Levite, and then finally the Samaritan who passes by the wayfarer who's been robbed and beaten on the side of the road. Then there's Mark 4, uh, the so-called parable of the sower or the soils. Uh, Good soil, it says, brought forth 30, 60, and 100-fold. And then there's Luke 15, what I call the uh, God's lost and found uh, parables. There's a parable of lost sheep. There's a parable about a lost coin. And then the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. In fact, in outlining his book, Dr. Jeremiah uh, 
centers around three main texts regarding the rapture, and he uses John 14, 1 through 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I would not have you be ignorant, brethren. And so this rule of three is certainly on God's radar, we could say. And in the Shepherd's Trilogy, then, we're looking at three psalms, 22, 23, and 24. And there seems to be a connected, progressive revelation and theme about Christ in these. Now, the skeptic or the non-believer uh, might look at something like this and just say, well, that's purely conjecture or mere coincidence. But in these three psalms, we're going to find that there are three specific roles of Christ, the Messiah. And these roles are cast in terms of the shepherd's responsibilities. So we're speaking of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. And I would add that each of these psalms uh, has Jesus in a different time zone, meaning past, present, and future. So I'd like to give a quote from Dr. J. Vernon McGee regarding the shepherd connection that we find in these three psalms. Uh, it's a little uh, long and wordy, but I think it's good to listen to. So, J. Vernon McGee, quote, To put it succinctly, in Psalm 22 we see the cross. In Psalm 23, the shepherd's crook. And in Psalm 24, the crown, the king's crown. In Psalm 22, Jesus is the Savior. In Psalm 23, he is the satisfier. In Psalm 24, he is the sovereign. In Psalm 22, he is the foundation in Psalm 23, he is the manifestation. In Psalm 24, he is the expectation. In Psalm 22, he dies. In Psalm 23, he's living. And in Psalm 24, he's coming. Psalm 22 speaks of the past. Psalm 23 speaks of the present. And Psalm 24 speaks of the future. In Psalm 22, he gives his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, he gives his love to the sheep. In Psalm 24, he gives us light when he shall appear. What a wonderful picture we have of Christ in these three psalms, end quote. Now, when we actually begin to uh, go through this series of lessons that I've planned regarding these psalms, 22, 23, and 24, I intend to delve very deeply into each one individually. But for our introductory purposes today, there will only be a brief overview of each psalm to lay the foundation for the deeper study later. Okay, so let us start with Psalm 22. Beginning with Psalm 22, which has 31 verses, by the way, there is a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, in his role as the Good Shepherd, giving his life for the flock. Now I want to point out that each of these three Psalms has a parallel proof text to be found in the New Testament. For Psalm 22, the proof text is found in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, where Jesus claims to be the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now interestingly, contained in the 22nd Psalm is probably the clearest description of, of uh, crucifixion found anywhere in Scripture. 
And this was written, remember, about a thousand years BC. And in it, it just describes in amazing detail the process of crucifixion. Yes. No, it was not used. Was not used. This was a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, and I'll just add, it was about five hundred years before it, crucifixion was even introduced or practiced. Now we associate the Roman Empire with protect, perfecting this lethal form of execution, and well, they did. But uh, it's noted in Encyclopedia Britannica that the first historical record of crucifixion was by the Persians. This was under King Darius I around 519 B.C. And he started, and he really got off to a bang with it. He crucified about 3,000 of his political opponents in Babylon. Now, Psalm 22 is also the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is, a, of course, a Davidic, Davidic song. David wrote it. It's thought to have been penned while he was young and on the run from King Saul. Yet this psalm reads like a first-person account of the pain and the affliction and the humiliation that crucifixion inflicts upon its victims. And amazingly, Psalm 22 opens with some of the first words that Jesus spoke from the cross and also closes with some of his final words. Now this last fact that it closes with his final words, it's not readily apparent in some of our popular modern Bible translations, most of which uh, we'll read uh, in verse 31, they will read, He has done it. He has done it. Many of the modern translations. So you have to read it in Greek in order to see that this uh, rendering is actually incorrect. Uh, in the, but we have the Septuagint, which is an amazing uh, Greek translation from the Hebrew original language, which was written around 250 B.C. And this makes it clear. The Hebrew word that is in the original text is asah, A-S-A-H. And it's been translated, it can be translated, he has done it. But when it's translated into Greek, it is tetelestai. Now, does that, does that sound familiar to anybody in here? Porter. That's right. And so this is the same Greek word that John used in documenting the Lord's last statement from the cross in John 19.30. Here it is. Jesus on the cross. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That's that Greek word, tetelestai. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. So let's focus on the Greek word here for a moment. Tetelestai, it is a legal term. And in Jesus' day, it often meant paid in full. And it was often written across a paid invoice. And additionally, and I think more importantly, Whenever a prisoner was released from confinement, he would receive a document with this word written across the document, and the document was called a bill of charges, the charges for which he had served time. Now, the ex-convict was then to carry this paper, this bill of charges with him, as proof that he had paid his debt to society. Now, why was that important? This was to prevent his being charged with the same crime ever again. So used in this way, the legal implications of the Lord's last words are really staggering, but most assuring as well. Listen to how Paul explains this for us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul speaking, 
He says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, that is spiritually lost, he, that is God the Father, has made alive all together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. Listen to this. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that is the bill of charges, that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So by this verse then, we are able to understand that the bill of charges for which Jesus was convicted in the legal sense, these were actually the charges that God has filed against us. That is, it is our sins. Jesus' last words, in effect, declared paid in full, meaning that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for, forgiven. As God sees it, our record has been exonerated and we can legally never be charged again with our sins. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14, makes this crystal clear for us. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says, But this man, meaning Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, one last point then that I want to make with regard to Psalm 22 before moving on is this. Um, and you may have your Bibles open to those Psalms. There is a major transition that occurs at the end of verse 21, and some modern translations simply omit it. It, I mean, this, tra this transition is connected to a key phrase. And this phrase is proof that God the Father had heard and answered the prayers of God the Son on the cross. The words or phrase that should be at the end of verse 21 in Psalm 22 are, quote, you have answered me. You have answered me. Do your translations mostly have that or no? Yeah, okay. It's there in the Hebrew interlinear Bible. It's, it's there in the Hebrew. And it's also in the literal standard version. Remember that version we talked about? As well as the New King James Version. But it's not in all modern translations. Now why is that even important? Well, because while the one on the cross, Jesus, was undergoing the most painful form of execution that was ever devised, he petitioned the Father. I counted at least three major things that he asked. He says... Do not be far from me. He said, deliver me. And he said, save me. So that the phrase, you have answered me, takes on great importance because it's a declaration of God's faithfulness and it indicates a positive response from the Father to the Son's pleas. And therefore, this is only possible if the one being executed and certain to die will also be resurrected from the dead. So Psalm 22 begins then with Christ on the cross, but it ends with his bodily resurrection. I find that amazing. Any comments? Section 2. Let's briefly look now at Psalm 23. This psalm describes the Lord's role today as our great shepherd, the one who tends the flock, 
Now there is a proof text for Psalm 23, and this is found in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, where it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What does that sound like to you in those bold uh, lettered words there that he's talking about? Because to me, it speaks of sanctification in this life, our Christian walk, that he is the one that does it. Uh, say again? Working with the Holy Spirit in us, indwelling us. So the 23rd Psalm then is probably the most popular Bible passage among believers and non-believers alike. It's frequently used at funerals, right? Although it's really a Psalm of life. It begins with the Lord's promise to always be with us wherever we go. And it ends with what must be the rapture of his church as he takes us to dwell in the house of the Lord. See that in verse 6 of Psalm 23? The house of the Lord is the same thing as the Father's house, right? Forever. This would then parallel what Jesus was saying to the disciples in, in John 14, verses 1 through 3, when he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are, uh, are many mansions. That is the house of the Lord. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, in the house of the Lord. Psalm 23 then tells us that while we're here on earth, we are beyond the reach of our enemies. Do you see that in there? And especially our enemy, the devil, even though we find ourselves in this life in his domain, that is the world, we have no cause to fear. This fact, which is that the Lord is the one who leads and protects us, this fact is likely the foundational basis for Paul's admonition that he gives to the Philippian believers in chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay. Any comments, any other comments on uh, Psalm 23? Okay. Finally then, I want to consider Psalm 24. Here, Jesus is going to be presented as the chief shepherd. And its New Testament proof text is going to be found in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, where Peter writes, And when the chief shepherd appears, that is revealed, you will receive the crown of glory, a reward that does not fade away. Now, because Psalm 24 is probably the least familiar to us, I decided it's 10 verses. I decided to go ahead and read it so we would be familiar with the terminology. 
So Psalm 24 reads as follows. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has established, excuse me, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. What gates and doors do you think he's talking about? That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. So, in Psalm 24, we see the chief shepherd will reward his flock. Now, this psalm begins with a reminder that the earth is the Lord's, and that includes everything in it. Then Psalm 24 ends with Jesus the Messiah, and he is in Jerusalem. These are the doors and gates that, of which they're speaking, as the king of the whole earth, just as this was preordained in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea, in both summer and winter, it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. So Psalm 24 makes it clear that the Lord created the earth, that he redeemed the earth, and by rights he will come to take possession of it. And the psalmist invites, did you catch it, those with clean hands and pure hearts to ascend to the Lord's holy place with the blessing of the king of glory. Clean hands and pure hearts doesn't sound like me. So in order for his sheep to qualify, that is to have clean hands and clean hearts, it requires nothing less than a complete recreation. But we know that when anyone by faith trusts in Christ as his or her Savior, they are a new creation. This is what Paul was writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, there we have it. By way of introduction, when we put the three shepherd psalms together, we're able to see at least four major themes. In Psalm 22, we can see the Messiah in his first visit to earth. The Lord coming to die as our substitutionary sacrifice to take away all of our sins. Also in that psalm, we see Christ would be resurrected and that that re resurrection proves his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father and therefore Jesus accomplished his mission in the first visit. Psalm 23 makes it clear that during the time since his ascension, Jesus is keeping his people spiritually secure in this world through sanctification until he takes them to be with him forever at the rapture. 
And then fourth, in Psalm 24, we see that after that, he will return to earth as the king of glory to establish his kingdom and reward his people for their faith. And that's my introduction. I would uh, welcome any comments or questions or thoughts that you might have. We have a few minutes left. Denise. Uh, it will be recorded. Okay. It'll be recorded, and I have. If you want them personally, I can give them all to you after class. All the references. Okay. Yes, it's it's recorded. Good. Well, thanks. Good. Good. Any others? Okay, why don't we close in in prayer. Jay, would you close us today?